All right, so if you walk into the Stereo Embers podcast studio, it looks exactly like my room when I was 17. Why? Well, because I kept all the posters that were on my wall when I was 17. Yeah, I'm 51 years old, and I have no idea what's going on in my 401k, but I know exactly where my Blue Airplanes poster is, right here in the studio. Now, the other day, I was hanging out. We were doing some editing. I was eating lunch, and I was looking around the studio at all these posters, and one caught my eye. And I thought to myself, there's a band I always wanted to interview, but I never did. So there was only one thing to do. I flashed the indie rock bat signal. I took a picture of the poster, put it on Instagram, and I said, I want to interview this band. It's been 35 years. Come on. And four seconds later, the singer of the band responded and said, I'm in. And so he was. And we did it. And you're going to hear it in a second. Who is this mystery person who's been on my wall all these years? You're going to find out right now. Well, not right now. Give it a minute and a half. I'm Alex Green, and this is Stereo Embers, the podcast. Check this out. Some people would know I'd have something here. Said I was a hard time trying this in mind. Warm enough to argue the point while I tell you any reason. Nothing too unusual. That is the music of Dump Truck, a band which features my guest today on the program, Seth Tiven. Let me tell you a little bit about Dump Truck and Seth Tiven. By the time Seth Tiven formed Dump Truck in 1983, he'd already had a few bands under his belt, including Saucers, a band he was in with fellow Connecticut pal Mark Mulcahy, who would go on to form Miracle Legion. Tiven had relocated to Boston after graduating from Wesleyan, and the supporting cast of Dump Truck had a few personnel changes along the way. But, changes aside, their first two albums, D is for Dump Truck and Positively Dump Truck, both issued on Big Time, were two very strong entries to begin a career. Moody, dark, and filled with jangle and melodic smarts, the band were lumped in with folks like R.E.M. and the Connells, and rightfully so. They were all pretty much in the same pocket. But it was 1987's For the Country, which featured Kevin Salem stepping in for Kirk Swan, that really was the band's apotheosis. A stirring and angry collection that explored isolation and the loneliness of geography, For the Country bristled with confidence and indie rock grace. Tracks like Going Nowhere and Carefree demonstrated that Dumb Truck really couldn't be stopped, and they were one of the most vital bands out there. They played with the replacements and Husker Du, they had a growing fan base, and they were poised to take the next big step forward to the big time. And then, the big time took that step forward and pushed it ten steps back. Not the big time as in the big time, but the big time as in big time records. What happened next is both complicated and not really that complicated, but Seth is going to explain it because he can do it better than I can. But it kind of went down like this. 
dump truck were crushing it big time financially was getting crushed in tons of financial trouble the label was basically free falling so dump trucks lawyer tried to sell their contract to phonogram big time got pissed off and they decided to sue dump truck for five million dollars as you can imagine this became a protracted and very ugly legal battle and you don't need me to tell you this but Nothing sucks a band's momentum up faster than a protracted legal battle. The resolution to this case took years and a lot of money, but in the end, Dump Truck did prevail. Now, if you think most bands would have a hard time recapturing the momentum I was talking about that sidelined them after a thing like this went down, well, you would be right. And Dump Truck fell into that category. They gave it a shot, but too much had changed, and they broke up in 1991. But that wasn't the end of Dump Truck. The tracks they recorded during the legal battle were finally released as the Days of Fear record in 1994. They put out Terminal in 98, Lemmings Traveled to the Sea in 2001, and in 2018, we got Wrecked. All great records, by the way. But it's hard not to think about what would have happened if Dump Truck's momentum wasn't interrupted as the 80s came to a close. One never knows, but one thing I do know is that Seth Tibben is a really nice guy, and I'm so happy he answered the bat signal and came out for a chat. So here you go. Me and Seth Tibben of Dump Truck having a conversation right here on Stereo Embers, the podcast. Connecticut, and then I lived in Boston for about 10 years. Um, you know, back 30 years ago, it was like I was so fed up with Boston and the weather and the congestion, and um, it just was just just like I had had it. And Austin was this kind of laid back, kind of hip, hip in a good way back then, town. Um, you know, where it's like really laid back and, and it had a really good atmosphere and, you know, you could just basically, you, you, you could live pretty reasonably and not have to hustle too much. And that, that was really nice. Um, and you could buy a house. I mean, that was the other thing, you know, I was, I was like in my early mid thirties when I moved down here and I couldn't see myself ever being able to afford a house I wanted to around Boston area, you know, in an area I'd want to live. Whereas here, I could move down here and, and buy a house easily, you know? I mean, houses were 50 grand back then, you know? And, uh, and now, of course, I mean, I still have my house, thank God, because I couldn't afford to live here if I didn't, you know? So the cost of living has gone up considerably in Austin. Well, yeah, especially for for real estate. I mean, the real estate is insane here. It's it's just unbelievable what what's 
how fast it goes up and how fast things sell. And I mean, my neighborhood now, like I said, I bought, I bought a house 30 years ago for 50 grand. And now everything that's selling in my neighborhood is a teardown. And they're going for about a million dollars and change for, for a teardown. For a teardown. Yeah. So here in the Bay Area, people who can't afford the prices here have gone to Texas because they thought, you know, they think, oh, well, we can afford it there. And they could. And now they've changed. They're the ones who have probably changed how, you know, right. The cost has have gone up because everyone's come out there and now there's a huge demand. Well, yeah, because I mean, they, they, they go and they sell their like, you know, $2 million California house. And they're like, oh man, houses are cheap here. I can get something for half that. But half that here is, you know, twice what people were used to paying, you know? Yeah. It was, it, I mean, it's just, it's just economics. It's just the balance, you know, it, it's like, it, it's like water finds its level, you know? I mean, people find their level and it takes longer with stuff like houses and people having to move, but um, it all it settles out and, and now it's like I mean I can't really complain a whole lot because I, I, I could sell the house and cash out and move someplace but in terms of like people moving here and, and having this hip laid back environment it's that ain't happening again for a while is there still a pretty vital music scene or does it, I mean, the way it was maybe 30 years ago, or does it feel a little different? It's kind of different now because, um, I mean, back then you could, you know, you could work, you know, 30 hours a week and pay your rent and play in a band and stuff like that and kind of do what you wanted to do. And now it's like, you better hustle and have a decent job just to be able to afford to play in a band. And, oh. you know, and the places, you know, there used to be a whole lot of places you could rehearse at, rehearsal rooms. Almost all the rehearsal rooms have closed. Um, just because, I mean, there's a lot more high dollar uses for that real estate now, you know. I, so, I don't know, you know, I mean, it's still a decent environment here, but it, it's very different than it was. And obviously it's 30 years on, every place is really different than it was 30 years ago, you know? Was your, was your intention to move to Austin and keep Dump Truck going? Or had you sort of resigned yourself to the idea of like, put it on ice for a while? Like what was your vision of the band when you, when you moved to Austin? Well, when I moved, here i mean we had just gotten out of the lawsuit and we had a record that was pretty much done and my attitude was kind of like well you know if someone wants to pick up this record and and put it out we can always get together and tour the record you know at that point we were down to three pieces in boston it was just me and sean and our bass player Brian and so at that point I was just like well we'll see what happens but you know we had been touring for you know two and a half three years just to pay our lawyers and shit like that and 
Um, so it, at that point, I just, I wanted, I needed a break. And I moved down here. And so we, we had finished that record, or I finished it very shortly after moving down here. I think I went back up there for the final mixing. And, and then it was like, what was going on in the music scene at that point was that was right when like Nirvana broke big and the whole the whole Seattle scene and the, the grunge, which really we didn't fit into that scene at all. So we couldn't get anyone to put out the record for um, like three or four years. And finally, like a local label, a small label in Austin put it out. But um that point it was just like it's done i want to put it out i want to get it done with it and i don't know what i'm doing after that and so i did that and then um you know this this fellow alan durham who's been our guitar player for quite some time now you know he was a fan of the band and he was like you know you should get a version of the band together down here and start playing and you know, he wanted to play guitar, and I was like, well, what the hell? Why don't I try it and see what it, you know, see what happens? Um, and so we we did that, and, uh, you know, we, we recorded another record in the mid-90s, and, you know, it was just really hard to get it. It, it was hard to get anything going on the level that I had had you know, five, 10 years prior to that. And, and at that point it was like, well, you know, I've got to, I've got to do something that'll make a living. So I, I went back to, you know, I had, I had done like computer software work for on and off for years. That's, that's how I would support myself when we weren't touring in the eighties. And I just, ended up doing more of that in the 90s and 2000s and it's like well at some point i'm gonna have to retire i, I better make some money or something you know because right. you know it's like i i i realized pretty pretty much at that point i am not gonna make a living at music not doing the music that i i want to play you know i could maybe I could find something where I'm doing music, but I'm doing something I'm not really crazy about and I could make a living doing it, but that's not what I wanted to do. So it, it was always like, well, I'd rather be able to, I'd rather make a living off computers and then do exactly what I want in music than try and make a living off music. Because A, I'll, have a, I'll make a better living and B, I'll be able to do what I want with music. Was there a little bit of a phantom limb when you were doing that? Where it sort of like because I know the dump truck was a pretty good draw. I mean, you guys, you guys definitely had like critical success. People loved you. Um, you could you could fill a club. There was no doubt about that. So yeah. So when you when you sort of like did like the mock to Austin version of the band, and you realized it wasn't going to be the same, was that sort of a little weird or a little bit underwhelming for you artistically? A little bit, yeah. I mean, it was like, it, it sort of made me decide to focus more 
on caring about recording than than caring about playing live. I mean, I like playing live and I, and I like doing it, but the idea of like going out on the road on a bare bones level for you know weeks or months or whatever it just really didn't appeal to me at that point you know it's it's one thing if you're going on the road and you're you're playing like thousand seat joints and you're you're selling it maybe not even selling out but selling pretty well and stuff like that and making a decent living the road can be okay but if you're going out on the road and playing to 100 or 200 people and sleeping in crappy hotels, it gets old really fast, you yeah. know? So yeah, there were back in the late 80s, yeah, we could tour and we could, we could make decent money. In fact, we made decent money. The only thing was that it was all, you know, not all of it, but half of it was going to lawyers at that point. So we, we never really saw the benefit of that. You know, I had the I had the big time roster in front of me. I was looking at it. Here, here it is at the time. And like we're talking about like Hoodoo Gurus, Jazz Butcher, Alex Chilton, Go Betweens, Love and Rockets, Dump Truck, Dream Syndicate. The list goes on. Were you the only guys that got fucked over so bad by the label? Because it seems like everybody else were able to get out of it. Were you the only ones that seems like it all the burden? It seems like it all fell on you guys, um, and I never really understood why it was just you. Well, I think um, part of it was a bunch. Of, so some of those deals were licensing deals, where where big time like big time was licensing Beggars Banquet. I I think for a while, so they had like the fall and a bunch of that stuff. Um, but. Part of the reason was when 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 the whole thing went down, like when For the Country came out, it was really obvious when we were touring the record that that big time was going under. Um, you know, because we when we had toured positively, it was like, you know, they had a radio staff, they had a press staff. For big time we were doing like two or three press interviews every day we were doing radio interviews in most of the towns we were playing at and then when it goes to for the country and we're touring that record um you know there's hardly any radio or press interviews set up the, the record isn't even in the stores in a lot of places we're playing um you know, checks from the label for tour support were, were coming late. You know, you knew you knew that things were not going well at big time. Hmm. And so what happened was they tried, or the head of big time was this guy, Fred, and he, he tried to shop us around to other labels. And so he managed to get this deal with us or for, you know, for us with Phonogram UK. And it was a, it was a good deal. I mean, it was, it was like, I think it was 200, a hundred thousand pounds they wanted to give us, which is decent money back then. Um, but the problem was that, that, he wanted to take half the money that we were getting up front. 
And it wasn't just like half the money that the band was getting. It was like half the recording budget. Basically, what it would have meant is, you know, we would have been getting this huge advance and no one in the band would have seen a fucking penny. Mm. And so, you know, when when we balked at that and we went to the label and to, to Phonogram UK and said, hey, you know, um, we'd love to do the deal with you, but we don't want to do it with big time because they don't have the rights to us anymore. And they're, they're, they're shopping us around and they don't have the rights. So I think it was a combination of the fact that big time was seeing a big payoff that they weren't going to get. And we had really embarrassed Fred by going to Phonogram and telling Phonogram that he was shopping a label, a band that he didn't have the rights to. Mm. I know. I mean, he was doing that and you know, it, it's like, Hey, this is the situation. It wasn't like we were like, Hey, Fred's, Fred's a total fucking asshole. Don't deal with him. It was just like, Hey, he doesn't have the rights to us. Right. So, um, I think, you know, it all became very, very personal on both levels, I, you know, both sides. I mean, I can remember having a, a, a conversation with him before the lawsuit started. Um, and, you know, it basically ended with, with you know, I, I was saying, look, you know, we're okay with giving you a piece of this deal, but you can't take 50% of, of the advance. And his response was, all right, this is going to be a shit fight. I'm going to tie you up for years and hanging up the phone. And he did. And he did. And that's exactly what he did. And, you know, hey, you live and learn. <laughs> yeah, but with what you guys, that was a five-year thing. It's hard. When you look at it on paper, you go, how can a band sort because in five years for a band is like a hundred years in real time. It's like, that's a oh, lot yeah. of time, right? Yeah. I mean, when it started, it was, you know, like what we were doing was, was totally, you know, a happening thing. And by the time the lawsuit finished, it was like grunge, 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 which I got nothing against grunge. I like some of it, you know, Yeah. but it wasn't what we were doing and it wasn't what I wanted to do. You know, it wasn't like, oh, we'll migrate over and be a grunge band now, you know? <laughs> no, that wasn't going to happen. I mean, the thing about it, I for the country, for me, I was listening to it the last two weeks, just really listening to it. And um, it always feels to me like a fall album. Like it feels like an, it's a September album for me. Um, maybe it's because when I got it, I, who knows? But it just sounds like the fall to me in the same way that like Skylarking feels like a spring album. But just some albums just hit a season. And for me- I can the, see that. Yeah, like For the Country has always been a September album. It sounds like it sounds like how it used to feel to have to go back to school. There's a kind of sadness to it. A little, there's an anger to it I didn't really pick up on uh, years ago. Right. Um, but it also, that album just sounds fucking great. It just sounds great. It doesn't sound dated. It sounds crunchy. It sounds urgent. It sounds almost better than ever now. Um, oh, it's thank you. I, I mean, I got to say, working with Hugh Jones doing that record was 
you know, one of the, one of the greatest experiences of my life, just being able to, to go go to Wales for like a month and a half and work with Hugh Jones on that, and it it was awesome. It it because he at the time he was one of my favorite producers, and so many records that I really liked had been made with that studio, and you know, it just he he really. He really like got a really good handle on the band and knew how to get the best out of us, I think. Yeah, yeah and I also think the addition of Kevin was sort of like, that was a, a pretty big secret weapon. I mean, he was, yes. he was ridiculous. Yes, he was, he was really, he really like, again, he, he, he knew just the right parts to add to songs. You know? Yeah, like that part on, like that ripple on Carefree. That's right. Of, right. That's Kevin, right? Which which part? That like, really hooky guitar line. The da -na 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 -na. Yeah. No, that's me. Is that you? That's me. Yeah. Maybe you're the secret weapon. <laughs> 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 well, it's a beautiful record and it's crunchy, it's angry, it's urgent. I love it. And Hugh, it sounds to me like you really got the band. And the fact that all these years later, it doesn't sound like a record from 1987. Um, it sort of it's into that sort of timeless category for me, which is a rare thing for an album, especially an album in the late eighties. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Especially, I mean, like if you look at positively, that album always seems so mid eighties to me. Mm. I, you know, I mean, especially the drum sound, everything about it, it just it just screams mid eighties to me. You know. And but you're right. And for the country, I, I do feel it's like sort of out of divorced from its time period a little bit. Yeah, know? exactly. It I mean, I love positively, but positively has that sort of mid 80s murk, that murky, jangly. It's a thing, right? You're right. You're right. It, it's the murk and it's also the gated snare thing. Yeah. That's that <laughs> that thing. Yeah, I like it, but you're right. Um, you're definitely right. But I, I also feel when I when I heard For the Country when I was 17, I remember thinking like it was so confident. It felt like a like a huge leap artistically forward in the sense that For the Country sounds like a band that is racked with belief. Like it felt like a like, like ascendant, like something was about to happen. Well, it kind of felt that way at the time. And I mean, that's the thing. It's like, you know. I think part of like the whole thing with like when you've been like scraping by and like okay the the positively it was like okay haul up in the van drive down to North Carolina we're gonna make this record in nine days and finish it and blah 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 and you know the the difference between that and okay when your label like says all right, we're going to fly you to London for two months and we'll do some pre-production for a week in London and then you're going to go out to Wales. It kind of, it gives you a confidence, you know, in a way where the label is saying, we believe in you this much, we're going to spend several hundred grand on you. Yeah. And, and, and so it does give you that feeling of confidence where you're like, oh, okay, someone, someone is going to put that into me and well, I better make sure that they get what they're paying for. You know what I mean? Right. And that album to me has muscle 
in a way that positively didn't, even though I love positively, but it didn't have the muscle and the, um, that sort of forging ahead kind of confidence that for the right. Yeah. And I think you Jones helped with a lot of that. I mean, certain stuff like, like, and, and this relates to what you were just saying, you know, like, um, I can remember when we were sitting down doing the, you know, first meeting and kind of getting to know each other and talking about what we wanted the record to sound like. One of the things he said was, you know, on Positively, you had acoustic guitars, like doubling the rhythms on almost every song. And that's fine and everything, but for this record, I'm gonna be I'm gonna be the voice of doubt on acoustic guitars, and you're gonna to have to justify every acoustic guitar that you want to put on this record. Okay. And I was like, okay, that's fair enough, you know. And 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 it, it you know, I, I I think it was a really good decision because it's it's like it's a really easy thing to say. Oh, I'll just double this guitar on acoustic and. You know, it's it's a standard studio trick, but it's also kind of a crutch in some ways, you know. But it also made deep cuts. Like I didn't realize how great Wire, for example, which is a deep cut on that album. I didn't realize how great that song really is. Like, you know, it's like track 10 and it just, it sounds as confident as track one. No, thanks. Yeah, I, you know, I mean, that, that record, I, a lot of it, I probably had about eight or nine of the songs done when we went there and the, maybe, you know, two or three got finished over there when we were actually in the studio. And, and I mean, I, I really had no idea how that record was gonna turn out. And I just, I had a bunch of songs and Again, I really give you, Jones, a lot of credit for turning in it into as the coherent thing it, it ended up being.
Yeah, and it's it's a complete package. Even the cover, which has the cover, has that sort of that. I know that that um, Tim Swan did the cover, right? Yes. Yeah. Yeah, it has that sort of explosion on it. That sort and it, and it the velocity that it depicts is the velocity that you hear. No, it's interesting. I never really thought of it that way. Yeah, yeah. I, I I just love that image. He he was, I love his image on Positively too. He was really talented. Yeah, he's um, a, he is an incredibly talented graphic artist. He really is. He's amazing, right? Yeah, I mean every record he's done a bunch of, I and mean, that wasn't his big thing, but he would do record covers for friends, and everyone he's done, I really like. You know. Oh yeah, yeah. It's um. And so you, when you think in terms of like, I remember back in the early nineties, I was in a club in Berkeley and I was watching the Counting Crows and Adam's parents were in the front row, right? These right. Two, two Jewish doctors supporting their son in this small club, the Berkeley Square, which you guys may have played. I don't remember. I think we did. I remember playing Berkeley Square. Berkeley yeah. Square, yeah. And um, I remember thinking at the time, like a lot of people like, I can't believe his parents are here. But Jewish parents, I hate to generalize, but Jewish parents are very supportive of their kids in a way that like they would go to a nightclub like that. Did you have to ever explain to your parents your artistic endeavor or did you feel really that did you feel supported by them early on? They were pretty supportive. I mean, early on they were, well, you know, my brother had kind of gone in the same direction doing music before me, because he was a couple of years older than me. Um, my dad had been like, uh, you know, he, he had been a drummer in like jazz combos in the 40s and played like the little resort circuit in Connecticut and stuff like that. He never made a career of it, but so, I mean, they understood it and, you know, they weren't thrilled with it, but like once we started getting getting some notice and some success, they were incredibly supportive. Hmm. It was like, it was more like, it, it was never like they weren't being supportive. It was more, they were nervous. You know, they, they were like, oh, you're not, you know, you're not gonna be able to make a living doing this, blah, blah, which they're right, you know, but, um, but yeah, they would always come to see us when we were playing, you know, in New Haven area or something like that. And they, they were, you know, I, I mean, hell, almost every tour we did, we'd have to pass through New Haven heading out of Boston. And they'd be like, have everyone stop for dinner. You know? <laughs> I'll, feed, I'll feed the band on your way out and stuff like that. So yeah, they were always pretty great about it. So your, your brother had a band too? Yeah, my brother had a band in the late 70s called the Yankees. And then he um, played guitar for a little bit with Jim Carroll's band. Hmm. He did like one tour with Jim Carroll. And then he, he mostly gravitated towards more production and, and studio stuff. He didn't, he really didn't like 
that that one Jim Carroll, Jim Carroll tour, and it was probably like only two or three weeks, but he hated being on the road. He did not like being on the road at all. And so he he's done a bunch of like production recording work and he's he did uh he produced uh, Steve Cropper's last record. Oh wow. In fact, I think uh, it was up for a Grammy. I don't think it won the Grammy, but um, that came out last year. So he's he lives in Nashville and he's got his own like a studio in his house and you know he makes records with people he digs. Not a bad life. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and in terms of like friendships with other bands, like guys like Miracle Legion, there was obviously like a, a, a sort of um, a close friendship with those guys. Some members kind of hopped around. Oh, uh, yeah. Yeah. Right. Are you still pals with Mark and, and Ray? You know, yeah. I, I don't talk to Ray quite as much, but actually I just talked, I was just talking to Mark yesterday. Um, yeah, he's, he, he lives up in, uh, Springfield, Mass. Now and uh, yeah, we we totally still stay in touch. I stay in touch with most of the the people up in Boston area, New England area that I I played music with up there and stuff. Not everyone, but most of them. And all the uh, I know Dump Truck wasn't like the fall where you had like a thousand members, but all the former alums of Dump Truck are you are you in touch with those guys? Mo almost all of them, yeah. Um, I mean, Kirk, I'm still good friends with. Um, our our bass player Steve Missioner, I still talk to him every once in a while. Um, Sean Devlin, I'm still yeah, our, our drummer, I'm still in touch with. Uh, Spike Priggan, who played bass with us on and off various incarnations. I. Yeah, most everyone who's been the band. I don't talk to Kevin very much, and it's not like anything deliberate. It's just I don't run across him very much, you know. Um, but pretty much everyone else who's been in the band, I'm I'm still mostly in touch with. And I mean, you guys did a record in 2018, right? And you and you and Kirk were on that record together. It was kind of cool that. Yeah, that actually, we started that record in like 2007 and it started and it was going to be a, like, we were, Kirk and I were going to do the whole record together and we got, you know, basic tracks done and we were working on it for a year or two and then it ended up, Kirk decided he wanted to just work on his songs and I'd work on my songs, but whatever we had done on each other's songs we were free to use and stuff like that so that's kind of how that ended up and so that that's why one of the reasons that record just took forever to finish so you know it, it did start out and Kirk's on a bunch of the tracks and then um Alan's on some of the tracks and yeah there's a, that that one's kind of all over the place and We've started some basics for maybe a new record. I don't know. We'll see where it goes, you know. Did you, if I remember correctly, you got your degree from Wesleyan in music, right? Yeah, yeah. I was in kind of experimental music. I It, it was a very weird music degree in that there was no music theory involved. There was no, like, classical music or music history. It was all just, like, uh, 
electronic music and synthesizers and found music and stuff like that. But they, they had a very cool program where you could do that. Which was kind of ahead of its time because that there wasn't, if I think about it, there, there probably weren't a lot of places where that could happen. In, 19, no. in 1976 or whatever. No, right? not at all. You know, I mean, um, the the guy who was my advisor for for music was this guy Alvin Lucier, who was a, a pretty well known like electronic music, experimental music artist, and one of his his most famous piece is called I Am Sitting in a Room. And it, it's it's actually pretty fucking brilliant, but, and he had demonstrated to us back then, but he taped two tape recorders and they'd be about 20, 25 feet apart. And so he'd string a, a reel of tape going from one recorder to the other. And so it would basically just be a long echo loop. So you'd be recording on the first computer and then the distance, the length of time between the two, two tape decks was about 25 seconds. And so he would just, he, he had the spoken word piece that he would read into the first tape recorder until it started echoing back and then he would stop. And then it would continue to echo over an hour or, or about a half hour. And what it would end up doing is just completely reinforcing, because it, was, it, it wasn't done with like wires going from the first tape recorder to the second tape recorder. It was done with microphones. Mm -hmm. So each echo, which was like 30 seconds long or whatever, would pick up the resonance of the room. And so over the course of about 20 or 30 minutes, it would just mutate from this, um, th this spoken word thing into this complete tonal thing. And you couldn't even make, you couldn't make out it. In fact, they did a, there was some like 24 hour version of it they did recently in the last year or two to celebrate his birthday or something. And it had like a bunch of, of well-known people doing this piece over the course of like 24 hours or something. And it was fascinating, you know? I would tune in every once in a while. And what's it be? I think Thurston Moore was, in, was one of the people and- mm some of the Yola Tango people, I think. I don't, I don't even remember who else was involved, but, but you know, it was like, I, I would appreciate that whole experience a lot more now probably than I did then, but it certainly, it opened my, my mind up a whole lot to just like non-standard ways of doing things. Right, like a more idiosyncratic approach would be would be uh, welcomed rather or embraced. Yeah, and and just like that, there wasn't oh, there's this right way and this is how you do it. It was more like just just the idea that sound was whatever you found, you know. And yeah, notes notes are a part of it, but 
it's just one part of it. How do you regard Dump Truck now? Like when you sort of, not, lo not looking back, like I don't mean that, but I mean in terms of when you think of Dump Truck, does Dump Truck feel like this sort of kind of floating entity that you feed into every now and then? Or like, is it kind of an abstract idea? Like, how do you, how do, how do you contextualize the band on a day-to-day -day basis? I don't know. I mean, I just mostly think of it in terms of, of it's my outlet for most of my musical work these days. You know, anything that, that, you know, pretty much if I'm doing it under my name, unless I'm doing just a purely acoustic record, it's going to be a dump truck record. So it's sort of like, it's not an alter ego or anything, but it's just sort of like an outlet, you know? Um, and yeah, it's certainly like there's obviously there's the history and, and you know, it, it just, I'm certainly, uh, I'm, I'm happy with it. You know, it's, it's like, I don't know that I, I sometimes wonder about, well, what if the lawsuit didn't happen and we had actually been able to make that transition? But, you know, I don't, I don't know that it would have been a lot better. You know what I mean? It's, yeah. it's like, I don't know. I, 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 I wonder whether I would have wanted to deal with, with it if we had been a whole lot more successful, whether I would have wanted to or been able to deal with the stress of, of like, I just see what bands go through these days. It's, it's not a lot of fun, you know? No, and you guys certainly toured with a lot of bands that some of who I think would surprise people. I mean, because the, the list of people you toured with, can you think of off your top of your head, like the range of who that was? We play with, all. I mean, we, we open for uh, replacements, we open for Husker Du, we open for a whole tour with Let's Active. Um, we played shows with, you know, opening for John Cale. The funny thing is, is like, I think at one of the first shows, the Pixies opened for us, which is, which is pretty hilarious. In Boston? Uh, in Boston, yeah. yeah. Um, and yeah, just like, I don't even remember some of the bands we played with these days, you know, right now, but we did a lot of, we, there was about five or six years of pretty solid touring. I remember reading somewhere that Aristotle said that, you know, you don't admire anybody until you see how their life ends. You know, like, don't don't say like, oh, I wanna be that person. I wish I had his life. You should wait and see what the arc of that life really is, right? And all those bands that you mentioned, um, we know how it ended, for, right? We, we know, we know what happened to Husker Du, what happened to the replacements, um, right. what happened to the Pixies, like we know. Um, so in many ways, it's sort of like, you know, when you think about what could have happened, what, what might've happened, um, it's hard to say, right? Like who knows, but right. it, it probably would have, would have risen and fallen just like it did for everybody else. Right. Right. Yeah. And I mean, you know, I mean, also it's like, personally, I don't enjoy like large shows, like stadium shows. I just don't enjoy them. Um, 
I like small shows. You know, I like smaller venues, seeing bands and and playing them. It's just, it's just there's a connection you don't get in in the larger venues. You know. What was the biggest show Dump Truck played? Like, what was the largest? Probably like, uh, probably like Irving Plaza in New York was pretty. That that was that was a decent sized show. Yeah. Um, I mean, down here we played Liberty Lunch. We played once during South by where it was absolutely you know sold out and insane. Um. But yeah, we played like. Irving Plaza, we played by ourselves. We played with the replacements there a couple of times. Um, so those are some of the biggest shows, probably. Seeing bands like the replacements or Husker do like that, that, that must have knocked you out, though, to be that close to those, those bands. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it, that was a lot of fun. It was a hell of a lot of fun. But I look at guys like Westerberg, like Westerberg has turned into J.D. Salinger, you know, sort of like, where is he? <laughs> you know, right. Right. I mean, or or someone like Mark uh, from Miracle Legion is as, you know, sort of um, idiosyncratic as ever and mysterious as ever. Sure. And there seems to be like a certain level of success becomes intrusive. You know, it's nice to shield yourself away from that, I think, to protect yourself. Yeah. Well, I mean, just like, like, I would not want to be in a situation where everywhere I go, people recognize me. You know what I mean? It's, it's like, and, and there were times back in the 80s where in certain areas, like in Boston, people would recognize me. And, you know, I'll be honest with you, I don't like it. <laughs> you know, I like, I like. I like remaining anonymous mostly in public, you know? So I don't know. I I don't know. I don't think I'd, I probably wouldn't have fun as a celebrity. <laughs> well, even listening to the lyrics on For the Country, I mean, those are pretty isolating lyrics. You know, if, 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 if Paul Simon was like, I am a rock, I am an island, you're saying, get off of my island, <laughs> which is, yeah. you were like, you were like, get off my lawn before you were 30. You know? Well, yeah, that's true. <laughs> <laughs> yes, and I, yeah, I certainly get accused of making plenty of the get off my lawn comments. So, <laughs> <laughs> but those those lyrics, I mean, you were very introspective, very young. Yeah, yeah, definitely. You know, what what is your daily practice like? Are you do you play music every day? Do you take that guitar off the wall and play, or do you? Are there sometimes where you don't you don't do it at all? There's definitely times when I just ignore the guitar, but I try and pick it up. As you know, if I'm sitting at my desk, I try and pick up the guitar for a little bit and play a little. Um, I just went through like there was about three or four months last year, the end of last year when I really couldn't play, I, I sliced up my finger real good last August. And so I wasn't, I, I could barely play at all for about three or four months after that. So and it's just, it still feels weird, but it's healing up at this point and I can get back to playing. So it's kind of nice. It makes you almost appreciate it more. 
Well, yeah, you get a little break. You can, you kind of like start exploring again, you know? So. Yeah. But how'd you slice your finger up so bad? Oh, it was just really stupid. I was cooking and uh, I believe I was slicing a piece of baby bok choy and I had my finger like this finger here, the third finger on my left hand, which is like the most important guitar playing finger. And I, I had it underneath the bok choy and I pushed down hard and I, I cut it directly across the, like a straight across cut. And it was like four stitches in there. And it was just, oh, I'm bad with, I'm bad with blood. I don't like blood, especially my own, you know, I just don't <laughs> like, I don't like seeing blood and Ugh, it's just, it, well, you just not good. You just explained why why we two Jewish boys never became doctors. Well, my mom, my folks always wanted me to be a doctor, and I'm like, uh, I, I hate the sight of blood. And I, they were like, well, how about a lawyer? I'm like, lawyers are all assholes. Different kind of blood. <laughs> it's sort of, but it's the job description is is like, yes, you're. I'm paying you to be my asshole. You know, basically, right. Um, I rediscovered, you know, there's, there's holes in my musical knowledge and, um, you know, you're, sometimes you're the victim of your era. And there was a band that had kind of come and gone by the time I was coming of age. And I really never got into them until recently, but there's a band called The Neats. And I figured you must have known The Neats because they were a oh, Boston yeah. band, right? Yeah, they were, they were like, they probably broke up right about when we were getting started. They broke, but yeah, I remember them from when I first moved to, to Boston. Um, they were they were definitely in in the uh, in this in a similar vein, really in the whole REM vein and and stuff like that. Um, and they were they were good. In fact, I think that their main guy Eric Martin, I think he still plays around Boston some. They were phenomenal. Yeah, they were a cool band. Yeah, them and the Liars. Were you a Liars fan? I liked them. Okay, I thought. Uh, you know, let's just say Mono Man just pulled some shit on some friends of mine various times. I I just I thought he's kind of a dick. Some the music I like, okay, but you know, you know how sometimes you have a hard time appreciating the music apart from the personality if you know the person. And yeah, yeah I have that issue with them. It's just like the 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 lead guy. Yeah. 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 No, I, I know. I know it can be some, separating the artist from the art. Sometimes uh, if it's too personal, you can't do it. Right. I mean, there's some people like, you know, I mean, Ted Nugent could write the, the most brilliant song in the world, although I seriously doubt that he ever would, but I still wouldn't fucking listen to it. because He's no. just such a dick, you know? No, I know. Well, this has been the problem for me with Woody Allen movies because Woody Allen was like, got me into writing. And, you know, obviously reverse engineering, there's some really troublesome moments in his oeuvre, to put it as politely as possible. And even though I love those movies up until 1991 or two, maybe after Crimes and Misdemeanors, I'm, I'm almost done. Um, it's, it's been hard sometimes to watch those movies and not think in my brain about like, you know, because I, I just love Woody Allen and that's yeah, no, you know, I've had mixed feelings about Woody Allen. I still, 
I still, I don't know about the allegations. I still I don't, don't know that I totally buy it. I, I, I'm not saying he's doesn't have any issues or something, but I just have a hard time buying the whole story as Mia Farrow puts it out. Um, but even given that, I mean, like, and I love Woody Allen movies back in the day. I still like take the money and run. I think is great. And bananas, I think is great, but it definitely, you know, in retrospect, yeah. I mean, like you, you see some of that in, in some of his work and there's definitely that obsession. And I mean, some of the stuff ages okay and some of it doesn't age as well, you know? So I don't know, but yeah, it, there's always that, it, that issue, you know? I mean, you know, so separating the artist from the art. And yeah, it's tricky. Work. I mean, even knowing bands personally like you did, um, like if somebody was an amazing, I, I imagine Mark is like a lovely guy. So it almost makes you appreciate the music even more. It can work. It can work to the benefit of the art too. Right. Right. Yeah. I. I, I well, that's certainly true because I, I mean, there's some bands that I like more because I like them as people, and I, and it makes me understand where they're coming from with their music more. You know. So yeah, I I could totally see that. Did were you when Dump Truck was really sort of at their height? And people, and you were getting attention, and you were—it made you uncomfortable. How did you deal with that? Like, what was your what was your way of coping with being recognized? Because you were very recognizable. Um, how did you deal with that? Because I, I know you didn't like it. I mostly would just try and be polite, and then just sort of like do the minimum polite, minimal politeness, and then just sort of like try and extricate myself from it. <laughs> You know, I like, oh, well, thanks a lot. It was really nice to meet you. But I mean, I tend to be more towards introverted anyway, you know? Um, and even now it's like, I mean, Liberty, there was a big Liberty Lunch reunion show this past weekend that we played at. It was like our first gig in two years um, just because of COVID and all that shit. And I went there and I've lived in Austin for 30 years now. And like, I'm just, it was, it was great seeing all these people, but I get overloaded so quickly. Like after like an hour or two of seeing all these people and it's like, man, if I had a dollar for every, everyone I've seen who I know the face, but I can't put a name to it, I'd be rich. And, you know, and, and, it's like, it's great seeing all these people. I wish it could just be spread out over a longer period of time and not be this onslaught, you know, where it just gets, it gets to be an overload at some point. How was the gig? The gig was fun. It was a lot of fun. I mean, um, you know, we did, it was just like a 40 minute set or something, but it was really nice. We, we haven't been able to play out in two years because our guitar player has a, a young a young son who's like pretty immunocompromised. So he and us have all been being super careful about practicing or getting together or getting out in public and shit like that. And uh, 
So this is the first chance we've had to really be able to get together and rehearse and play a gig. And it was a lot of fun. You know, it's, it's, I missed it. Yeah, that's what I was going to ask you. Like being on stage, introspective as you are, that must be kind of like being in a, a sweet spot. Yeah, I, I, I always said, you know, I love, the, I love that hour, hour and a half, whatever it is that you're on the stage. But when you're touring, it's like, it's the other 23 hours of the day that are just like you're do, you're living that whole other 23 hours of the day just for that one hour, you know, and that's it. And that's been a consistent feeling even back in the 80s that you felt that way, too. Yeah. Oh, yeah. 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 And I mean, I enjoyed back then. It was like I hadn't seen that much of the country. So it was awesome just to be able to go and see like. All all these different parts of the of the u.s that i'd never been to before and it was it was a great way to kind of see how well you know where would i want to think about living you know i yeah i was watching some old uh live footage of you guys from like 86 you're in a really tight band i mean the band was very very tight when we were playing a lot we were very tight yeah i i marvel at it now i'm like god i wish we could get that tight now but you know you it's like yeah you're on the road for two months playing like six nights a week or something you better get tight if yeah. you're not getting tight then 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 something's wrong you know you guys were a match fit there's no doubt about that yeah you know no doubt um so if there is a new record and it sounds like something's cooking like what would that look like what do you have the songs do you have a vision for it is it like what's the state of it um we have basic tracks done for like four or five songs and they're kind of all over the place really um and then i've got like some rough sketches for maybe another three or four or five songs that'll probably end up on there um we did we did finish one of the songs and put it out about a year when about a year and a half ago out it's on youtube and more because it was like lyrically it was just well lyrically we wanted to have it out before the election let's put it that way it was yeah it's not like i i write a lot of political songs this one was kind of political so it was like well we've got it mostly done let's just do a video for it and put it out and we so i mean it's only out on youtube it's not even i think it's available for download but i don't think anyone has <laughs> you know hopefully they will now and in in terms of a label you just put it out on your own or is there a label yeah pretty yeah. much i mean i don't even know what a label does these days you know i, I the the whole the whole idea of an album release these days it's 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 just so vague i i mean yeah you can do physical copies and stuff and maybe maybe we'll do vinyl a short short run of vinyl or something but um it's just such a weird it's it's such a weird 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 place the music industry is in these days you know yeah, I don't think it's. I don't think the industry has ever really like regained its footing from from the onslaught of digital digital music. I just don't think no. it ever did. No, 
uh, you know, and I, and it's it's really kind of a mess because I I I don't know. I don't know if there is a good way of of doing it or a way that's fair of doing it. Because I mean, there's there's no way to lock down a music, you know. There's no way to lock down a music track now, and there there hasn't been. No. So, so I mean, you have this thing that yeah, anyone can duplicate it. Anyone can make a copy of it, and you know all the all the crap with them trying to do copy protection back in the '90s. It was just such it was a fool's errand, you know. Yeah. So when someone can just they can just take what you've done, whenever they want it. Um, right. it, it decreases the the perception of the value of it right like oh absolutely yeah. i mean you'll laugh at this i was in the the record store 15 years ago and i found that first scruffy the cat ep on vinyl and right. i actually exclaimed i went yes like i didn't mean to do, like i was right. so happy i found it um but i don't think people these days that are under 30 can understand what i hate to sound like that old guy but it's like the idea of having a tactile physical copy of something that maybe nobody else had in 1986 or seven felt like you, it just felt really important and it felt cool. Oh yeah. Like, like the, the whole idea of bootlegs, you know, yeah. where like you had, yeah, exactly. You had something and you know, it was really hard to get your hands on and you got your hands on it and no one else had it. I, you know, I remember like, like early, not early, but like in the eighties, like bootleg stuff, like Dylan bootlegs, you know, and, and they, back then there was still stuff that was hard to get a hold of, you know, but now it's like, there's no more rarities. There's no more hard to find tracks because almost everything is on the, on the internet now. And there, there's, there's none of that thrill of discovering a lot, you know, some song that no one else or hardly anyone else has heard. Yeah, and it's it's disappointing. And and then like I saw like for Miracle Legion, like Mark will put up like live shows that are you know these beautifully recorded live shows you can buy on Bandcamp. Does Dump Truck right. have a a similar type of thing? Do you have archive shows that you're thinking of putting up for for sale? We do have some, and and one of these days I probably should get around to putting some of them up for sale you know, on Bandcamp or something. Um, there's there's some audio, there's some with video too. A lot of times with it, like with the video ones, a lot of times it's like, oh, fuck it, I'll just post it on YouTube. Because, you know, it's just easier that way. It's like, what am I going to see $20 from it if I bother with the whole process of, of making it available somehow? Maybe if a couple of people buy it, I don't see... 20 or 30 dollars but i'd almost rather just have it on youtube and have it anyone be able to watch it if they want to you know what i mean yeah 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 well uh i'm sure people would love to see it so i know it's a bit of a it takes work to get that stuff up there sometimes but you know there's a really good maxwell show that that someone sent me that i did put up on youtube and it's like a full maxwell show from the yeah 80s. Is that from, that's from like from 86? 86 or something like that, yeah. Yeah, that's a great show. Yeah, and I was really happy when someone sent that to me because I had not seen that. Yeah, yeah, that's really cool. Uh, working title for the new album, or is, there, is there a working title? I don't have one yet. I haven't gotten that far. <laughs> well, man, I, um, 
I'm stoked we talked, uh, especially on Passover. Good to spend uh, the first part of Passover yes, with you. happy Passover. Happy Passover. And uh, come back on the show when the new album comes out, too. Absolutely. Absolutely. Cool, Thanks for having me. Thanks for your time, Seth. Thank you. All right. I really enjoyed that. That was really cool. Seth Tiven of Dump Truck. Finally, we meet. Uh, You know what I did to commemorate that conversation? I moved the Dump Truck poster from the left side of the wall to right here in front of the microphone. You know, it feels relevant. I moved its position in the studio. I do that sometimes. Like on a Friday night, I'll look around and I'll go, let's move the posters around. Let's shake things up here a little bit. Move that one over there. Put that one up here, take that one down, move it over into the other room. (laughs) Yeah, dating has been a real problem for me. Uh, Check out Dump Truck's music, dumptruck-music.com. Get their music. Buy it all. It's fantastic. What a discography. I love that band, and uh, I want you to love them as well. Maybe you already do. Maybe you're new to Dump Truck. Maybe you're, uh, you know, a fan from a long t- I don't know where you are with the dump truck situation, um, but if you're a rookie fan or a longtime fan, hopefully this conversation reminded you uh, or excited you about that band, and uh, you're going to dig up their stuff that you don't have in your collection. Uh, I have it all, by the way, <laughs> which I didn't need to say that. Why do I need to tell you that? I have it all. I'm like a dump truck completist. I feel like I'm bragging Um, But I'm a huge fan. And uh, what can I say? I love them. And uh, Seth will be back on the program. Uh, AlexGreenOnline.com is where you need to go to find out what's happening with me. BombshellRadio.com will tell you all you need to know about our radio station. If you want to follow me on Twitter, uh, you can do it at Ember's Editor. Uh, I'm a little divided on the Elon Musk thing. If the Twitter deal goes through, I don't know. I'm not sure how long I'll be on Twitter. But I will be on Instagram because that's less evil uh, at Embers Podcast. You can also email me, editor at StereoEmbersMagazine.com. Don't forget, Stereo Embers, the podcast, is available on all podcast platforms. Go to the one that you use, subscribe, rate and review, tell all your friends. We would appreciate all those moves we're asking you to make let's close the show with a longer listen to one of my all-time favorite songs let alone one of my all-time favorite dump truck songs going nowhere enjoy it and thank you as always for listening to stereo embers the podcast only right here on bombshell radio some people would know i'd have something here said i was a hard time Trying this in